So these few weeks leading up to Easter, we are taking a look at resurrection grace in the lives of some of Jesus' closest followers. How an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ changed everything uh, for them. And by extension, how the grace of Jesus in the resurrection is available to us today. You know, most of us, most people think about Easter as kind of a family photo opportunity, time to do something fun in the community, find an Easter egg hunt or something like that, maybe just a, a nice tradition. But of course, we're aware that Easter is way more than that. Easter for Christians is the central event of the Christian faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. And so the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. But it's more than just an essential doctrine for the integrity of the Christian faith. It's deeply practical. It's deeply personal. Because the resurrection of Jesus, the risen Jesus, is alive today. And He is calling to us and interacting with us. Easter, this moment where Jesus overcomes the power of the grave, is the moment where the power of God and the love of Christ meet us at the point of our deepest brokenness and forge for us a pathway to restoration and wholeness. So Easter isn't just a theoretical construct and we say, yeah, that's something that we believe. Easter is all about life. Change. Easter is about where our brokenness and fallenness and weaknesses and sins and failures meet the power and love of God. And in His overcoming of the grave, He pushes His grace down into our lives and our brokenness. So last week we talked about the Apostle Peter. Peter who was, during the ministry of Jesus, the leader, if you will, of the disciples. And after Jesus raises and ascends to heaven, Peter becomes the leader of the Christian movement uh, around the world. And we saw at the moment of Peter's biggest failure, when he denied three times that he was one of Jesus' followers. No, I don't know who he is. And he carried the shame and the guilt of that. Peter's encounter with Jesus after his resurrection covers all of that shame. We saw that Jesus was ready with forgiveness and acceptance. And He wouldn't let Peter remain on the sidelines. He essentially said to him, if you love Me, then get back to work taking care of My sheep. There's too much to be done for you to just sit and feel sorry for yourself. It's gone. It's covered. Easter has changed everything for Peter. Today, we're going to spend a few minutes with another of Jesus' 12 disciples, the one that we've come to perhaps affectionately call Doubting Thomas. How would you like for your worst quality to get attached to your name for eternity? Um, Doubting Thomas. So before we get to John 20, where we have this encounter between Thomas and the risen Jesus, we've seen Thomas two other times in John's Gospel. The first is in John 11. You may remember John 11 is where Jesus goes to this village called Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. So just before they go to Bethany, 
Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus has died and we are going to Bethany. Thomas is the one, you might remember, who speaks up in uh, John eleven sixteen. 16. It says, let us also go that we may die with him. All right, well, here goes nothing. Let's go die with him, I guess. We see him again in John 14. We haven't gotten to this part in our series on John's Gospel. But in John 14, Jesus is instructing his disciples in kind of what's going to happen after his crucifixion and resurrection. He's saying that he is going back to the Father. He's going to prepare a place for his followers. And Thomas is the one who says in John 14, 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Of course, Jesus' famous answer is, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So that famous statement of Jesus is an answer to Thomas's question. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So we don't have this like full picture of Thomas, but the glimpses we get imply that perhaps he's not the most optimistic of the disciples. We're going to go to Bethany and die with him. We don't know where you're going. How are we possibly going to get where you are? And then we'll find where he really gets his nickname in our passage today in John 20. He's perhaps slow to accept the things of the kingdom of God or the teachings of Jesus. And so in our story today, we're going to see Thomas a bit more intimately. And we're going to watch him wrestle with an all-too-common nagging struggle for many followers of Jesus, namely doubt. Doubt. And once again, Jesus is going to mercifully single out his struggling friend, just as he pulled Peter aside in our story last week, and offer resurrection grace that will answer Thomas's doubt and leave him forever changed. And just maybe, as we journey with Thomas through the agony of uncertainty and watch with him as the risen Jesus puts his fears to rest, maybe we will find resurrection grace to answer our doubts as well. I'm going to read for you from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. John 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
by the time we get to this story, Jesus has risen from the dead, and He has appeared to some group of His disciples. Apparently Thomas was not among them at the time. But He has appeared, and those disciples have reported to Thomas, we've seen Him. right? He's risen, we have seen Him with our eyes, but Thomas refuses to believe. So let's talk for just a minute about Thomas's doubt. All right? We're going to try to press this down into our own lives and how this might look for us, but let's examine a little bit what Thomas is experiencing and expressing uh, in this demand to see Jesus' wounds and to place his hands there. First of all, we've got to keep in mind that the disciples' hopes have been on Jesus as the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was going to come and rescue Israel and bring the kingdom back. And their hopes seem to have been dashed at Calvary. When Jesus was crucified and died, those hopes of Jesus being their King and their Messiah and their conqueror seem to have died along with Him. Because you see, in their understanding, and the way that they read the promises in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't hang on crosses. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs reign. And they watched Him die. Now we know that Jesus has been telling them all along that the Son of Man will suffer and die and then He'll rise, but they don't. It's like that kind of goes in one ear and out the other. They don't quite get that. That's not how they, they don't really understand what he's saying. So for the disciples, when Jesus dies, their hopes of the Messiah coming and rescuing his people have been dashed along with it. And note, it's been eight days for Thomas. It wasn't that long for the other disciples who were there when Jesus came and stood among them and showed himself to them. But for Thomas, it's been eight days of this dashed, ruined hope of this uncertainty and this questioning. Was everything that I thought a lie? Was everything that I saw Jesus do my imagination? In a way, his doubt is reasonable. And in a way, from his perspective, it makes sense to not believe that Jesus has risen. Because messiahs don't die. He was supposed to come into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and conquer. And instead, he entered Jerusalem and was arrested and hung on a criminal's cross. So it makes sense at some level that Thomas is slow to believe. And so, Thomas demands empirical evidence, right? Until I see it, I will not believe it. Until he is standing in front of me, and I can see with my own eyes, and I can put my finger in the nail wounds, and put my hand into the side where Jesus was pierced, I will never believe. He says that emphatically. I will absolutely not believe until I can see it and touch it and know it. Sound familiar? I think Thomas might fit right in with our post-enlightenment scientific age where we need to be able to see and touch and taste and feel and prove everything. 
sometimes doubt seems reasonable. In some ways, unbelief makes sense. Right? Most of us have lived life enough to know that things don't always work out the way that you hope. So why hope? Sometimes the things we think are true, the things that we even feel certain about, disappoint us and leave us wanting. So why believe anything at all? What, after all, can we really know with certainty anyway? And let's face it, Christians believe some pretty weird stuff. We believe that a once-dead Jewish carpenter is the ruler of the universe. That's pretty weird. So it makes sense in some ways to look at the content of our belief and what it means to to know and follow Jesus and go, you know, this, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe you've felt this way before. Maybe you're entertaining thoughts like this right now. This whole Christianity thing, I, I don't know. I grew up with it, learned it from my parents, been in church a long time, but it's always seemed weird. I, don't, I just don't know what I think about it. Sometimes doubt seems reasonable. And I think it seemed reasonable to Thomas. Unless I see it, I can feel it, I can know it, I'm not going to believe it. But you know, I think there's also an emotional aspect to Thomas's doubt. I don't think he's merely saying, you know, on principle, I only take as truth the things which can be demonstrably proven beyond reasonable doubt. I don't think this is just a principle of philosophy or what can be known. He's also saying, I have hoped too much, believed too much, loved too much to go through this again if it's not for real. He spent three years of his life with Jesus. He gave up career and family to follow Jesus wherever he went. And then his hopes were crucified. So if this is not absolutely certain, if I can't know this for sure, I'm not going through all this again. I'm not putting my belief and my hopes on Jesus again unless I know it for sure. Doubt has an emotional side. Doubt is not just intellectual. Doubt and unbelief come from the heart. It comes from a place of, I just can't make myself believe it because of the burdens and the brokenness that I carry. And so, in verse 25, he insists, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never So in some ways, maybe we can have a little bit of compassion on Thomas. Put ourselves in his shoes. It makes sense that he would be slow to believe. He's protecting himself. I don't want to believe too soon and get my hopes up and then find out that it's all for naught. And so the tension in the story is set up for us. What will happen to Thomas? How will Jesus engage with Thomas's doubts? When Thomas does see Jesus, is Jesus going to preach at him, shame him, wag his finger? So the next thing that emerges in our story is the mercy of Jesus. There's a few things that stand out to me about the way that Jesus 
engages with Thomas in his doubt. First of all, this encounter seems specifically designed for Thomas. It seems like the whole reason that Jesus showed up in this room with the disciples and Thomas is for his benefit. It's virtually identical to the encounter that was described just a few verses before. So when it said that he had appeared to the others, but Thomas wasn't with them, if you back up to verse 19, look at this appearance when Thomas wasn't there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. He appeared through locked doors, right? They were in a room, huddled together, doors locked. Jesus shows up. How did he get there? Right? So Jesus in his resurrection body has some weird kind of metaphysical thing going on, and he can get through a locked door. That's pretty crazy right there. But so Jesus shows up in their midst. And what does Jesus say? He says, peace be with you. And look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he did the very same thing. When all the disciples except Thomas were there, he came in and appeared through locked doors. He said, peace be with you. And then he showed them his wounds to prove, as it were, that it was really him. And so now, when Thomas is there, he does the exact same thing. He shows up through locked doors. He says, peace be with you. And then he's going to show to Thomas his wounds. So it's almost like he did this already. The only reason he's doing it again is Thomas missed out on it. So I think Jesus' mercy to Thomas is seen in the fact that he, this, he makes this appearance for his benefit. That's not to say that the other disciples didn't enjoy seeing him or couldn't have grown in their own faith through this encounter, but it seems to me that it was designed for Thomas. And we can see further evidence of that in that he singles Thomas out. Look in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and place your hand in my side. He knew. He knows what Thomas is thinking. He knows the doubt and the struggle and the uncertainty that Thomas is wrestling with. And so he comes for Thomas and he singles him out and he says, touch, see, believe. All this tells us, I think, that Jesus can handle our doubts. He's big enough to engage with our weakness of faith and those moments where we're just not sure that we believe this anymore. Those times where the transaction of salvation, all our sins forgiven, eternal life with God by simple faith, seems maybe too good to be true. There's no way this could be real. Jesus doesn't cast Thomas out. He doesn't tell him he's disqualified from serving God because his faith has wavered. He won't cast you out either. He won't disqualify you. Your struggle with doubt doesn't disqualify you from serving Him. Jesus can handle it. However, look at what Jesus says next. He says to Thomas, touch my hands and my side. And then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
gives him a command to believe. He doesn't say, your doubt's no big deal. Keep it up. It's actually kind of cool. He says, believe. Stop doubting. Stop unbelieving. In our age, when it's cool to question authority, be skeptical of truth claims, to think of certainty as arrogant in some way, certainty as a phantom, it's good to be reminded that disbelief is not commendable. It's contrary to the commands of Christ, right? So he can handle our doubts, but he wants us to grow through them. He wants us to move past them to belief. So we should be honest about our doubts, and we should take them to Jesus and ask for his help. He doesn't say, hide it, keep it to yourself, better not tell anybody that you're having second thoughts about this. He can handle it. Bring it. Bring it to me. But then he says, now, believe. Right? Don't disbelieve, but believe. Let's move. Let's grow. Let's keep going from there. I love the example of this kind of wrestling with doubt and belief that we see in the father of a demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9. Jesus uh, becomes aware of a boy who's been possessed by a demon and the father of the boy comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, please help. And Jesus says, if you can do anything? With faith, anything is possible. Right? And the guy says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love that statement. There's room in the Christian faith for belief and unbelief to wrestle and to tussle with one another at times. We think sometimes if I have any doubts, if I have any moments of weakness where I'm just not sure that I'm disqualified or that the whole thing must be untrue and I'll just cast the whole thing aside or that maybe God will cast me aside because my belief isn't strong enough. I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that should be our posture. Lord, I do believe most of the time, right? There are times where it's hard, but I want to believe. Will you help me believe? We should pray that in moments of doubt and weakness of faith. Pray, God, help me. Help strengthen my faith in you. Do not just believe, but believe. We see Jesus' mercy in that He gives Thomas what he needs. He gives Thomas what he's asked for. Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see it and I can touch it. And Jesus doesn't say, uh uh You've got to believe without seeing it first. He goes, here, touch it. Put your hand here. Now, believe. I've given you what you need. Now, we, we don't know whether, Jesus, whether Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds. It doesn't tell us that. Jesus says, here, touch my wounds, and now don't disbelieve but believe. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So I don't know if just seeing him and hearing him was enough, and Thomas didn't have to touch him. We don't know whether he did or not. But at the sight of Jesus and the sound of his words, his doubt is rebuked, his faith is restored, and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? That's the way that our world works, right? Seeing is believing. Won't believe it until I see it. You believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Guess who that is? 
It's us. We haven't seen, and yet we've believed. Jesus says, you're blessed. That's better. You're better off to not see and believe anyway. That's faith. Right? If it's something that I can touch and see and know, I don't have to have faith that this podium is right here. I see it. I just know it. It just is. But if I can't see it, and I just know in my gut, I believe in my heart that he's there, and that it's real, and that it's true, and that the story is true, that's faith. That's the essence of faith. The book of Hebrews tells us that the one who, without faith, it is impossible to please God because we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I'm reminded of the words of Peter in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8, 9, 8 and 9. He says of Jesus, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's at stake here? Salvation of our souls. The future inheritance that God has set aside for us. His presence with us in a relationship with Him and forgiveness of sins and new life and hope and peace. All of that is at stake. And it hinges on belief. You don't see Him, but you love Him. You don't see Him right now, but you believe in Him and you rejoice with an inexpressible, glorious joy. So Jesus is merciful to Thomas in his doubt, and Jesus is merciful to us in ours. He can handle it. He's not embarrassed by our struggles to believe. And I think we all experience moments, at least, of weakness and second-guessing. Really, this is kind of bizarre, if you think about it. Or it might even take the form of, it would really be a lot easier if I didn't have any Christian faith to guide my life, because, man, look at all the fun those guys are having. Look at all the stuff I could do, right? And so sometimes we feel left out of, like, the, the good life that people are living. We can convince ourselves that that would be better. It's not true. But we can think that way. So sometimes doubt takes that form. We almost wish we didn't believe. Jesus can handle it. Let me, let me conclude today with three exhortations, three thoughts where we might find resurrection grace for our doubts, for our weakness of faith. Number one, if you are in a season or a moment of doubt or uncertainty, don't ignore the psalms of lament. The psalms of lament. Did you know that of the 150 psalms recorded in Scripture, depending on how you classify them, up to 54 of them are psalms of lament. Lament is sorrow and sadness and expressing longing and unmet need. 54, that's more than a third of the book of Psalms, are psalms of sorrow and mourning and grief and the bitterness of life and the hardship of knowing and following God in the midst of this broken world. The language of worship and the heart of a worshiper have room for our deepest moments of skepticism and uncertainty. 
God inspired this book of songs. The Psalms is the only God-inspired book of songs. And he has, and it is filled with expressions of pain and fear and doubt and anxiety. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? What a mercy of God to us. He has given us language to express the doubts that hide in our hearts. And He invites us to come into His presence with them. Bring them. If you're in a season of doubt, these are your songs. These psalms are the ones you can carry to God in prayer. How long? Lord, deliver me. God provides these for you. Start with Psalm 13 and Psalm 22. You're not sure where to begin. You're in that season. I really would like to have language for this. Those are two great places to start. Psalm 13, Psalm 22. But here's the thing. The Psalms end with hope. Even most of the lament Psalms journey through doubt and despair, but they come back around to trust in God. Let the journey of the Psalms be your own journey. Don't ignore the Psalms of lament. Number two, don't forsake the community of faith. Oh, how we need each other. In moments of doubt and weakness, we need brothers and sisters in Christ who will come alongside and say, no, it's, this is true. I know it's hard to believe right now, but it's real. Hang in there. Keep believing. Let me bear some of the burden with you. We need that. God knows we need that, and that's why He puts us in the church. And He gives us all these commands about how to do life with one another. That's what that's about. You're weak, and you need brothers and sisters to lean on in times of weakness. There's an Andrew Peterson song. It's about marriage, but the, qual- the, the, the principle applies here to community. He says, when I lose my way, find me. When I loose love's chains, bind me. At the end of all my faith, to the end of all my days, when I forget my name, remind me. That's the grace of God in community. We need one another to remind each other of who we are. To remind each other, no, 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 this is the gospel you believe. This is the truth that you hold to. Hang in there. Don't forsake the community of faith. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. I quote these verses often. They're extremely important for us as a church. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's what we need in times of doubt. We need the exhortation. Hold fast to your confession without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the day of Christ's return and the reckoning. 
Hold fast your confession. Hold fast your confidence. By the way, stir one another up in this way. Consider how you can encourage each other in love and good deeds. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, it's going to get harder, not easier. You need each other. Don't forsake the community of faith. Finally, don't forget your sympathetic high priest. In the midst of your moments of weakness and seasons of doubt, don't forget that Jesus Christ has been through this before. And He bore it for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14-16 through say, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is a season of doubt and uncertainty if not a time of need? And the invitation of Jesus is come to me with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that you may find mercy to help time of need. Why? Because Jesus has been there. Jesus has experienced it. Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are. I think that includes being tempted toward doubt and uncertainty and fear. He did it without sin. So we know He didn't slide all the way over into unbelief. But the temptation was there. And He withstood it for our sake. So that when we have those moments of weakness, those moments of doubt, we can run to our sympathetic high priest, Jesus the Son of God, and say, I know you've been here. You know what this is like. Will you help me? Will you strengthen me? Will you bear me up? I believe. Help my unbelief. And so just like Thomas, when he encountered the risen Jesus, was overcome with the truth and the reality of who he is. And his doubts were answered. And he cried out in faith, my Lord and my God. So too for us, weak and frail though we are, and seasons of doubt though we struggle, resurrection grace is available for us. The risen Christ is standing, pleading, inviting, come. Touch my hands. Touch my side, as it were. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And may we find in encountering and approaching Jesus Christ in faith that for us in our doubts and weaknesses, Easter changes everything.